Everybody, this is Opposing the Matrix. We're here tonight with uh, Ralph Epperson. We're doing our regular Wednesday night show. Hey, Ralph, how you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing fine, David. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Just uh, went to the dentist today and got up from a nap. So, man, life doesn't get any better than that, right? <laughs> well, we got some of your weather down here yesterday. It was rain, it rained uh, yesterday and also today. So, uh, you pretty mm-hmm. set down to me because I don't. I don't like it when it rains. I want it to be sunny and clear and beautiful and shiny, sunshine and everything else. But it was raining and drizzling. You know, it never really poured. Uh, uh, but uh, there was some lightning, which is unusual because that's usually connected with a, what we call a monsoon season, where we get uh, heavy rains and lightning and storms that come in and 20 minutes it passes over your head, drenches your pores, and then it just stops, quickly starts, quickly stops, and it's over. And then it moves north and then uh, ends up over, you know, I guess runs out of gas or something. So oh. it's usual. I don't think I, except, you know, November gets rain. But anyway, that's what we do. So let's yeah, talk we're, about what we're going to talk about today, my friend. That's a good idea. What it's, uh, let's let's explain what's going to happen here. So we're going to, uh, we have a, a, a two-part series called The Secret uh, Societies and the New World Order. Um, I have it in a one DVD. That's no problem. I can split that up. So we're going to do the first two hours of that tonight, and then next week we'll do the last hour of that, and then something called the Lion's Paw, Satan's Sign. Yes, that's good. We'll do that. If I may, I don't think it's called anything. It's called just the New World Order. Oh, finally explained. Okay. That called secret size, and uh, it's funny. I, someone ordered one of those, and I thought that the, the master I had was damaged, so I couldn't use it. So I scrounged around, and I found an old copy, and I made a copy, mailed it off a couple of days ago. So I guess I still have. But this is really important. By the way, I just want you to know, David, I yeah. believed in this result. This is the end result. This is where we're going as a nation, the new world order. Right. And I always believed that, and then. Uh, it, it was supposed to happen on the year 2000, and you'll, I'll cover that in here to show uh-huh. that in January was going to be announced. We were going to start it, and it didn't happen. And people said, oh, I ever said, you said it was going to. I said, no, I didn't. I never said, I said it was going to. I'm, I'm reading their own literature. They're the ones that picked it, and I didn't pick it. So it right. didn't happen. But I want you to know, a lot of people now feel, well, we got Trump, and he's doing a good thing. We're not going to get the new world order. I'm telling you, my friend. It's still on their agenda. And oh, sure it, it is. Might, it might, it might, they might wait till even Trump, you know, finishes another eight, or finishes an eight-year term. But we're going to get this if, if if we don't save this country. That's what it's all about. And well, so, Ralph, I I think they've changed it, Ralph, because they originally planned 2020, and now they're calling uh, they're calling it 2030. Well, you know, I. 
I found the date of the 1st of January in their own, 2000, in their own literature. So right. when I put it in, in writing, I was saying, this is what they are saying, not me. Right. I'm not a prophet. I'm not making a prediction. So I don't know when it's going to happen. And then we heard rumors, stories. I think I told you there was a story about, I think last week we talked about it on November the 3rd or wherever it was, there was going to be a major catastrophe in Seattle. And it was going uh-huh. to stop. And nothing happened. And that's the thing about this. The only thing I'll say is in the unseen hand, the back of the unseen hand, I started talking about how we change their plans. Understand, right. conspiracy has to work in secret. And if you discover what their plans are frequently, it's the best I can do, they'll change their plans. And I think that's what happened on the New World Order. I think that this date was cast in concrete. It goes all the way back to 6,000 years ago. Right. So it was supposed to happen, and that's why I, I covered it. I documented it from their own literature, and it didn't happen. So something changed their plans, and I don't know what did it. I don't, I don't take credit for it, but I know that I started warning him about the year 2000 in 1985. Right. Toured the country. I said, "This is, trust me," and I showed them the evidence of what I found. It's going to happen in the year 2000. So it's 15 right. years away. So get prepared for it and start educating yourself and tell us you're getting others educated so they can't pull it off, and they will change their plans. And either. Either I was, they were giving me false leads, which is also possible, or it was really happening. Some, maybe not me, but others together, made them change their plans. Right. Well, all they had to do was read the unseen hand and realize that that book was getting out to people, you know, and that it was probably getting out to some of the higher ups that they were reading it too. Uh, you know, the people that could prevent it, maybe people in the military and stuff like that, and you know. And then they said, oh, my goodness, you know, we can't do this now because too many people know about it, like you said. Well, that, you know. if that's the case, then that's what God asked me to do. I don't know that. I, I have no proof of that. Right. But I know this. Uh, I'm, I'm the first one to wrote a book called The New This is a this slide, but my book is the, called The New World Order. Great and book, the, too. Yeah, thank you. It was the first one written on that subject. Title that, and then I still think it's the best one. I've read the others called the New World Order, or simply New World Order, or even Pat Robertson's book. We talked about Pat Robert. Maybe it's even on here. I'll show you what he said about it. He didn't didn't have it. He was oh, well. That's another story. We can talk about Pat right. again, another context. But, but uh, uh, we won't be covering on this. I don't know. My uh, my father, Chris, um, so back in uh, back when your book came out, I'm pretty sure he bought it. Because I remember seeing it, okay. you know, and uh, so he read it, and that, that's when he started to jump into action oh, and started doing things. So, no, it was a very important book, and uh, it really opened up a lot of eyes. And when I read it, it really opened up my eyes, too. So, um, Some it, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, it's just, it's worth, it's worth the read, you know, and yeah. I don't know, if that book costs 100 bucks you know, it'd be worth getting just because of the information that was in it. There, folks, it doesn't cost that much. I'm just saying that right. if it did, it would, you know, it would definitely be worth it. I've had, I've had, I, I believe for a fellow that has no budget for advertising, I've never spent any money on advertising directly. Uh, you know, I'll do talk shows, and of course that's free. Uh, you, you ah. Oh, well, <laughs> previously, until the ring changed, <laughs> Different environment. 
I've got a video. <laughs> I, I've got over 700 talk shows. Yeah. That's an awful lot. Yeah. I've reached that out. Is. How many people have? Let's say the average thing is 10,000 people, 5,000. Say you've got 1,000. That's yeah. what, 600 with, with two more zeros. That's 60,000 people I've reached. Yeah, that's right. 60 times 1,000 is will be 600,000, right? Yeah, that's right. So that, who knows? And that could be a – I've been on some national programs. Uh, Ray Green was one of the first had a nationwide program on uh, uh, some, some network that had five or six hundred stations. He was way before Rush Rambler and else. And he invited me on there. And I, had, I think I had three hours with him. I was here wow. in Tuesday. He was in uh, L.A. And he gave me three hours. And so that got – I'm sure I sold books as a result of that. I was on uh-huh. a TV program called Action 60s, a total of six times, and together they sold close to 10,000 copies of both of my, you know, total of six, six and four, or five and five, they sold 10,000 of my books. Uh-huh. So and who knows how people, that started, you know, you buy the book, you've got to tell your neighbor about it, or you buy one. Sure. So that's the way it is. I've not spent any money on advertising. Yeah, I would I would exhort anybody that had a father that taught him about this stuff when they were younger, go look for your, through your father's library. I'll bet you'll find your books in there. Well, that would be really an honor, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, I bet they would. I bet they would, because I know I did. I'll tell you one quick story, and it's very quick. I got a letter in the mail, and I think you and I have talked about it before, from someone in Florida. And he said, I want you to know, Mr. Jervis, I read your book. And he said, you have, you have uh, exposed, I think he said, the, the forces of evil like no one else that I've ever read or seen. In fact, I consider it, to, listen to this, I consider it to be the second most important book ever written compared wow. to the Bible. Oh, I, my goodness. Did I, I think maybe I didn't do it, but I, I called him. I found it. This is one of the early when they had white pages on the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Internet. I found his name. I called him. I said, who are you? Sam was a civil engineer, which means he's an educated man and very competent. But he lived in Brooklyn or some someplace in New York, I think, and retired to Florida. He was 71 years old. And I said, I said, do you really mean this? I'm not kidding you. I've read an awful lot. And this book is just, it's its the finest book I've ever read on exposing evil. Wow. You know, what an honor. <laughs> you know? Okay, so tonight's the New World Order. I think I called it uh, finally. Uh, here it is. This says finally explained. That's what it's going to be. The new world. Okay. Because you're going to learn what it really is. From I think from Ralph. Like, hold it up again. What, what does it say on the bottom? A civilization. What? Can you see it? No, no. You got to move it over there. Uh, okay. Um, uh, a, a new civilization is coming. That's what it says. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's what it is, a new civilization. All the things that we live today, family and morality and uh, and uh, houses and private property and religion and, and uh, whatever else you want, that's kind of all going to go. That's how bad it is. That's what yeah. the new order is. And George Herbert Walker Bush knew that in 1990 when he said it's coming. That's right. But that's I said right. it was coming in 1985. I'd be here by five years. That's right. That's right. So is there, what's... Um Real quick, uh, you pretty well summed up what's on it. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that's on it? I think you're going to find this very interesting. Uh, 
in there you're going to see a, a, a book written by Terry Cole Whitaker. Now, I don't know where that is, but I want you to pay attention. Here's a woman who was a Christian, and she was an evangelist, apparently in Southern California. So I, I had never heard of her, but someone recommended I read her book. This woman went to Yelm, Washington, and talked to a woman who was a, a discovered Ramtha, and she channeled Ramtha and started oh, wow. a big movement. Thousands of people were going up there to talk to her and meet her and spend a week with her or whatever at some camp up in some place in Washington. So Terry Cole Whitaker went, and suddenly she became a New Ager. And you cannot believe what she's rejected. She's thrown out every tenet of Christianity and just said, I believe in this now. And I'm right. telling you, well, I'm going to let you wait and hear it. Just pay a particular attention. This is what happens when you get into the New Age religion. What you end up believing, it's monstrous. Right. See what it is. It's all covered in this. Man, so oh, man, oh, man. It's just going to happen. Wow. Fair. It's, it's going to be eye-opening, I think, especially because people, if they don't know what the New World Order is, they've never heard it before. I think I've adequately explained it very simply, documented it with, as you know, when you watch my DVDs, they're all documented, footnote, page numbers, etc. author, picture of the author, picture of the book, page number, and then the words written on the screen, so you read along with me. So I would urge you to pay attention. It's going to be about three to four hours, whatever it is, and do two hours tonight, and then the third hour, Next, uh, next uh, uh, Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds good. All right, Ralph, without further ado, then we'll go ahead and uh, get started with the video. And uh, just wanted to thank you. And, uh, and we'll, uh, you know, we could talk again offline here. But um, if I may, uh, my yeah, wife, sure. Ralph, oh, yeah. Ralph Dash Epperson. I'll, I'll show you that. Maybe you can see how it's spelled. <laughs> Down the yeah, E-P-P-E-R-S-O-N. Okay. And there's a dash between that, ralph-epperson.com. So go there and just browse. I don't want you, you don't have to buy anything. Just browse and start to grasp how enormous this problem is. That's right. I agree. Wonderful website, too. And like you said, you don't even have to, I hope they buy stuff there, but um, even if they don't, you know, like you said, there's there's enough evidence there to that's compelling that would that and and verified. That um, and I like how it starts out with the uh, the newspaper from uh, before World uh, before Pearl Harbor. Yes, no, I it couldn't have started out any better than with That's that. I got how evil these people are. Definitely. Just one sentence: Roosevelt sat in the White House waiting for notification of the attack. What type of man can do that? The same they, kind of man that could sit read. Books to children while the Twin Towers were being hit with yeah. airplanes. Well, very good. Ralph-Everson.com. I want to thank you once again, David, for an opportunity to speak to your listeners or anyone wherever this thing ends up. Uh, they know they could call me and talk to me. I talk, take phone calls often from people I don't even know. We talk for hours sometimes. So, no, you can always contact me. I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to talk. Thank you so very much, David. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, folks, we're going to go ahead and uh, commence with the video. So uh, see you next week, Ralph. You bet. I'll be there, David. Thank you. Okay. Tuesday, January the 29th, 1991. The President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush. 
the State of the Union Address to the Congress of the United States. I come to this House of the people to speak to all Americans. Certain we stand at a defining hour. Halfway around the world we are engaged in a great struggle. In the skies and on the seas and sands. Uh, he was, of course, speaking about the Gulf War. We know why we are there. We are Americans, part of something larger than ourselves. What is at stake is more than a small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. Such such is a world worthy of our struggle and worthy of our children's future. The New World Order, a four-hour discussion of the New World Order, a future so horrific that those who are in support of it had to conceal it in secret coded language. Delivered on October the 1st, 2012. A presentation of Publius Productions. Part 1 of 3. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily foreknowing may avoid, O oh, speak. Horatio, Act 1, Scene 1, Hamlet by William Shakespeare. I shall speak, Ralph Epperson, October the 1st, 2012. My name is Ralph Epperson, and I will be the one presenting this information today. Let me explain first that this is a PowerPoint presentation computer program, and it will not allow me to change slides while I am speaking. So this might sound a little disjointed, and there will be short gaps while I am changing slides. It might be important at this point to provide you with a little background information about me and why I wanted to produce this presentation. I'm a graduate of the University of Arizona, but I am sorry to report that a high percentage of what I was taught at the university was simply not true. So I have spent the last 50 years of my life looking into the evidence that this nation is being taken somewhere, and all of that research has convinced me that where we, are, we as a nation are going will not be fun. I put my research into a total of four books, 17 DVDs, and five booklets. I've been honored to appear on two History Channel documentaries, which they're still being shown on the cable network, and they are entitled The Secrets of the Dollar Bill and The Secrets of the Founding Father. I also want you to know that I have no staff working for me, no researchers doing my research for me, no confidential sources sending me information, and no one funding my work. I am solely responsible for what you are about to see and hear. And I will be mentioning 
my books and some of my DVDs as I progress through this material. I want you to also know that I am granting you permission to make copies of all parts of this DVD, and if you agree with me, may I suggest that you make copies and give them to everyone that you think might watch them so that others may learn the truth about America's future. And lastly, I would like to ask each of you to serve on a jury. That means I'm urging you to be open and listen to what I'm presenting before you reach a verdict. Because I'm convinced that this material will be perhaps the most important speech you will ever hear. The problem is that severe. This, of course, is a photograph of the magnificent Grand Canyon in my home state of Arizona. I've added these squares over the picture to make a point. What I will be discussing on this presentation is a huge puzzle consisting of many individual pieces. And now I have wiped out some of the squares, and even though I have done that, you can still see that this is a nearly complete picture of the Grand Canyon. I'm saying that if you do not agree with certain portions of this presentation, I'm asking you to discard those parts. And I believe you will still be able to see that what I presented is still evidence that there is a secret plan in operation for this world. If I had to completely convince you, I wouldn't even try, because there are many parts of this evidence that is completely contrary to what you believe. So please keep this in mind as you listen to and watch what I will be presenting. I'm going to speak about the subject of the New World Order, something I first discovered in 1985 when I started studying the symbols on the back of our dollar bill. This started me to question the very foundation of this nation because I've uncovered the evidence that our founding fathers were not great and noble men as we've been taught. I addressed this issue when I went on a 91-city, 31-state speaking tour across the United States between the years 1985 and 87 with my first book entitled The Unseen Hand. This book has been published for 27 years and is being reprinted now in seven foreign nations. And the title of my speech was Secret Societies and the New World Order. In other words, I was discussing this thing called the New World Order, something that I discovered in 1985, five years before I heard George Bush mention the phrase in 1990. When I first found this, I questioned my research because I had a great deal of difficulty in, accept, in accepting this premise. And I believe that you will have a great difficulty in accepting it as well. I have found the evidence that our founding fathers dedicated this nation to a secret destiny in at least 1782 to a thing that they called the New World Order. I will discuss this secret destiny in this presentation as it progresses. But President Bush's reference to a New World Order on January the 29th, 1991, was not the first time he mentioned the phrase. This is a rather poor quality of the Birmingham 
poor quality copy of the Birmingham News of September the 11th, 1990, wherein they informed their readers that a new world order would be forged by the Gulf crisis. The article said, President Bush will tell Congress tonight that the Persian Gulf crisis has forged a new world order. And this is the close-up of the date of that speech to be delivered that night in Congress, September the 11th, the very day of the World Trade Towers attack 11 years later. And as I will discuss in a few minutes, there's reason to believe that George Bush picked that very day, September the 11th, because 11 years later, it was the very day that the new world order began. And only a few have connected these two days, September the 11th, 1990, with September the 11th, 2001. And two of these people are Ralph Epperson and President George Herbert Walker Bush. But the American people will, in the main, think it is just another coincidence. But whatever this new world order is, President Bush is not the only one wishing it. This is another poor quality photocopy of the June 5th, 1990 Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper. And as you can see, the headline reads, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev urges new world order. You will notice that he called for a new world order just a few months before George Bush did. Even Fidel Castro called for a new world order, but his call was even earlier than either of these two leaders. His call was on October the 12th, 1979, at least 11 years earlier than Gorbachev's call. Now, this raises a very serious question. Fidel Castro is a communist. Mikhail Gorbachev is a communist. But George Bush is a capitalist. How can two communists and one capitalist both want the same thing? We have been taught that the communists hate the capitalists as an exploiter of the working classes. They are two diametrically opposed views of man's need for a world government, for a government yet, yet here they both want the same thing. One can only wonder how this can work. If it is a world where both have their own styles of government, this cannot be a new world order because this is what we have already. So it must be something else. And this will become clear as to how a communist and a capitalist can both want the same form of government as I progress through this presentation. So whatever it is, the new world order will be brought into power by the United States, at least according to a quotation from Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's Secretary of State. This is what he said in 1976, 14 years before Bush mentioned the phrase. America is uniquely endowed to play a creative and decisive role in the new order which is taking form around us. So the United States will provide the wind to drive the sails of the new world order. And once again, he said this 14 years before George Herbert Walker Bush mentioned the phrase. 
So let me start with an examination of the great seal of the United States as printed on the back of our dollar bill. I would dare say that an overwhelming majority of the American people have no idea what all of these symbols shown here mean. Yet all of us carry some of these dollar bills with us at all times. So let me start with some basic information about the Great Seal. These two circles that constitute the two sides of the Great Seal of the United States were unanimously approved by our founding fathers in 1782. First of all, we now have to examine what a government seal is and the reasons it was created. The original seal was melted wax, dipped, uh, dripped, uh, <laughs> dripped onto the front of a document or upon the fold of some document to seal it. Once the wax starts to cool, the king would press his ring into the wax as a way of making the document official. Notice that such a seal would have only one side. But the American seal has two sides. And now I would like to introduce you to Manly P. Hall, perhaps the most prolific of all of the writers on the subject of the occult mysteries. By the way, the word occult is defined by a dictionary is hidden from sight, obscure. Mr. Hall wrote a book discussing the occult, meaning hidden secrets of the Great Seal, in 1944. His book was entitled The Secret Destiny of America, in which he discussed this nation's future and how the Great Seal played a part in concealing that future from the American people. He wrote, There exists in the world today, and has existed for thousands of years, a body of enlightened humans united in what might be termed an order of the quest. It is composed of those whose intellectual and spiritual perceptions have revealed to them that civilization has a secret destiny. Secret, I say, because this high purpose is not realized by the many. So the world civilization has a secret destination, one that the average citizen does not know anything about. Now, I have known about this new civilization since around 1985, and I've done all that I could to prevent it. This is, <laughs> this is how I feel many times. I'm trying to stop these planners from pushing the earth over a cliff and into the new world order. Yet I continue so now that we know that let we know that, let me now return to the writings of Mr. Hall. If this design on the upper side of the seal is stamped with the signature of the order of the quest, the design on the reverse side is even more definitely related to the mysteries. So Mr. Hall was telling us that both sides are full of symbols, but the pyramid side, called the reverse side, is especially significant. Mr. Hall also discussed the order of the quest in another of his books entitled The Secret Teachings of All Ages, 
published in 1977. Not only were many of the founders of the United States Masons. Now, here we're talking about the Freemasons, and we'll cover them in more detail a little later. But the Masons received aid from a secret body in Europe. Now, Mr. Hall does not say who this secret body in Europe was, but it appears to have been the Illuminati formed in 1776 in Bavaria, now part of Germany, by Adam Weishaupt about the same time that the founders of this nation were creating the United States. He continued, which helped them to establish this country for a particular purpose, known only to the initiated few. So America had a particular purpose, a secret destiny, known only to the Illuminati, the Order of the Quest, and the Masons. Mr. Hall further told us who at least one of the group known as the Order of the Quest was. He wrote this on page 134 of The Secret Destiny of America. Benjamin Franklin spoke for the Order of the Quest, and most of the men who worked with him were also members. So the Illuminati, the Order of the Quest, and the Masons created this nation with a secret destiny not to be known to the average American. And then Mr. Hall tells his readers where the evidence of this conspiracy can be found. Here are once again both sides of the Great Seal of the United States, as reprinted on the back of every American dollar bill. Mr. Hall tells us that it does have a purpose on page 181 of his book entitled The Secret Destiny of America and in additional writings of his. There is only one possible origin of these symbols, and that is the secret societies which came to this country 150 years before the American Revolution. The American Revolutionary War started in 1776, so 150 years prior to that year would be 1626, about the same time the Pilgrims and the Puritans came to America. So Mr. Hall is saying that at about the same time the first settlers were coming to America, another group came who intended to set this nation up with a secret purpose in mind. Mr. Hall continued, the Great Seal was directly inspired by the order of the quest. And it set forth the purpose for this nation. What he was saying was that these symbols on our dollar bill are related to the ancient worship of the ancient mystery religion. So now let me spend some time explaining just what some of these symbols on the Great Seal of the United States mean. This is the reverse side by itself. I would now like to define the Latin phrase annuit septus novus ordo seclorum. The word annuit is defined as the announcement of or the announcing of. The word septus is defined as the conception of or the birth of. The word novus is defined as new. The word ordo is translated to order. And the word seclorum is defined as world. So taken all together, the phrase is defined 
as announcing the birth of the new world order. Then notice the Roman numerals on the base of the pyramid. They are the Roman letters, meaning the number 1776. Arguably, one could conclude that this was because it was on in the year of 1776 that America declared its independence from Great Britain. But it could also mean the year that Adam Weishaupt founded the secret society known as the Illuminati. It will be your choice as to which explanation is the correct one. Now, let me point out that the eye is above the pyramid and not upon it. When the eye lands on the top of the pyramid, the New World Order will commence. In other words, the work of creating the New World Order is not done as of yet. It is set for a date in the future. As I said, the Great Seal was created and unanimously approved by the Founding Fathers in 1782. Now, let me start with some basic definitions. There are basically two different views of historical events. The first is called the accidental view of history. And it holds that no one really knows why wars, depressions, and revolutions happen. They just do. This is the view taught by most historians. But my 50 years of research has convinced me that this view is an enormous lie. Perhaps the best evidence that it is is this statement, history is written by the victors. Or in this case, history is written by the planners. However, I believe the evidence teaches what I call the conspiratorial view of history, and it is the one that I have, been, I have dedicated my adult life to making public. This view holds that the major events of the past have been planned by a conspiracy years in advance. Uh, this is a picture that appeared in my local newspaper many years ago, showing a bunch of doves uh, standing on telephone lines. I use this slide frequently in my lectures as a way of showing what the price is for believing in the conspiratorial view of history. I tell those in the audience that one of these birds believes in the conspiratorial view of history, and I'll we'll let you guess which dove that is. Now, let me define the word conspiracy. It is defined as two or more people meeting in secret with an evil plan. Obviously, if you have an evil plan, you must work in secret. Because if the people found out about it before it occurred, they would expose it and not allow the event to occur. And the reason is obvious. Good people with a good plan seek publicity. Evil people with an evil plan seek secrecy. This is Alice Bailey, a supporter of this New World Order. She wrote this in her book entitled The Externalization of the Hierarchy on page 670. The one thing which humanity needs today is the realization that there is a plan which is definitely working out through all world happenings. All that has happened lately is assuredly in line with that plan. 
Another who was in agreement with that plan is Benjamin Krem, who wrote this in his book entitled The Reappearance of the Christ. In every age, teachers have come forth from this spiritual center. They are the custodians of a plan. They are a hierarchy of masters who substand all world events and constitute the invisible government of the planet. Now, I would like to bring to your attention someone else who is in support of this plan, someone you would all be familiar with, and that is President Bill Clinton, elected in 1992 and 1996, shown here as the Time Magazine's 1992 Man of the Year. Uh, by, by the way, notice how Time Magazine placed this picture uh, in front of the two uprights of the letter M. <laughs> were, they, were they trying to tell us something? This is Mr. Clinton addressing the nation on the night of July 16, 1992. That was the night he gave his acceptance speech after he had received the nomination of his party as their presidential candidate. It was during this speech that Clinton told the American people more than they wanted to know. Clinton and his uh, and Clinton and his vice presidential nominee Al Gore wrote a book in 1992 entitled "Putting People First, so that we would know what exactly what their program for the future was. This book has a complete transcript of the speech starting on page 217. And this is page 231, where he gave his thanks to two individuals who gave him the urging to become involved in politics. This is what Clinton said that night. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown University, I heard that call clarified by a professor I had named Carol Quigley. And to understand how he told us he is in support in support of this plan, we must begin in the summer of 1963. The future president met President Kennedy during the Boys Nation conference held during that summer. The media has published a photograph of Mr. Clinton shaking the hand of the then president during the meeting that he and some of the other attendees had with him. Mr. Clinton had been selected from his home state of Arkansas as one of their delegates to the National Conference, and those who arranged that conference scheduled this meeting with the president. Bill Clinton was a junior in 1962 and 63, and a senior between 1963 and, of course, 1964. So those who heard Mr. Clinton's nationally televised address that night in 1992 certainly knew who John Kennedy was. However, it is doubtful that many knew who Carol Quigley, the second name Clinton mentioned, was. But there are some who did know, and I was one of those because I had read two of, of the professor's books prior 
1992, and therefore knew how important he was to our understanding of the nature and motives of this plan. And now America can know as well, because it is important that we all learn who Carol Quigley was and what he taught Bill Clinton. Because Clinton knows, in fact, he not only knew him, he praised him on a live nationally telecast speech. As I said, Bill Clinton went to Georgetown for four years, from 1964 to 1968. And the reason that is significant is because Dr. Quigley wrote the first of his two books in 1966, somewhere between Clinton's sophomore and junior years. That book is entitled Tragedy and Hope, and this book itself tells us a little background information on the doctor. Carol Quigley earned his Bachelor of Arts, Master of Arts, and Ph.D. degrees at Harvard. He's currently professor of history at the Foreign Service School of Georgetown University, formerly taught at Princeton and at Harvard. So Dr. Quigley would be called a liberal establishment Ph.D. This is a poor quality copy of a two-page article that appeared in the Georgetown University Alumni Magazine in the winter of 1993. The headline reads, Clinton and the Class of 1968. So this article appeared around the 25th anniversary of Clinton's graduation in the Class of 1968. And this is a close-up of the right-hand side of this two-page article. And you will notice that it says that his book, Tragedy and Hope, was, quote, required reading for his course, end quote. So we can now read what Bill Clinton read for one of Dr. Quigley's courses. And this is what Dr. Quigley wrote on page 950 of his book. There does exist and has existed for a generation, uh, meaning around 40 years back to around 1926. There does exist an international Anglophile network, meaning that the network is basically controlled by Englishmen, which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the Communists act. In fact, this network has no aversion to cooperating with the Communists or any other group and frequently does so. It has been my contention ever since around 1970 that Dr. Quigley was correct about the fact that someone else besides the communists were controlling both international and national communism. I first read the works of researcher Anthony Sutton about that same time, and his well-documented research still stands as the ultimate source for the evidence that Russian communism was created, financed, and controlled by American and English bankers since before the first Bolshevik communist revolution in 1905. So what Bill Clinton read from Dr. Quigley's book came as no surprise to me. And Dr. Quigley had added another thought. 
one that is very rare in the history of the research into the conspiratorial view of history. He said that he had written his book because he supported the conspiracy he had been researching. This is what he wrote on page 950. I know of the operations of this network because I've studied it for 20 years, meaning back to around 1946, and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s while he was writing his book to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it or to many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown. And I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. The careful reader of the preceding quote from the book by Dr. Quigley will notice that he made three very important observations. He knew about this network 20 years before his book was published, meaning that he learned about it after World War II. In other words, 1966 minus 20 is 1946. He claimed that he had been allowed to review their secret papers for two years before he wrote his book. And most importantly, he supported most of this conspiracy's aims. In other words, this network wanted Dr. Quigley to write his book because they allowed him to review their private papers. That means that they wanted him to make his research public. That means they wanted him to teach others about their existence to certain young people who attended his classes at Georgetown University, young people like Bill Clinton. By the way, this might be a good time to introduce a name whom you might know who also wrote in support of this conspiracy. This is a book called David Rockefeller Memoirs in which he made this extremely rare comment. This is that comment marked in yellow, and I would like to bring it to your attention because when this man speaks, he speaks with authority. As you can see, it is a long paragraph, and I shall try to reduce it down to just what he was trying to say as a way of saving time. This is what he wrote. For more than a century, extremists at either end of the political spectrum, of course, that means people like me, writing from the political right. These extremists have attacked the Rockefeller family as being a part of a secret cabal and conspiring to build a global and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that is the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. I cannot think of anyone with more outside influence in our 
political and economic institutions than David Rockefeller. So when he reports that those of us opposed to his involvement are correct, he is really admitting something very rare. I don't know anyone who could explain it better than he. Now, to show you a little of Mr. Rockefeller's Rockefeller's outside influence, I did a little research on the Internet for pictures of him with world leaders, and I found four rather poor-quality ones. First, here he is with the Russian communist leader Nikita Khrushchev. This is him with the Russian communist leader Alexei Kosygin. And this one with Chinese communist Shaolin Lai. And lastly, this one with Cuban communist Fidel Castro. Notice that Mr. Rockefeller is shown meeting with communists. While I was at the University of Arizona, I was taught that the capitalists and the communists hated each other, preferring that the other's economic system was inferior to their own. But here we see him, a capitalist, with four communist leaders. And notice, he was not arrested and tried for his crimes of exploiting the masses. Uh, Would someone please explain this to me, because my professors did not. And please answer this question for me. Who elected him to meet with representatives of government? I thought it was our elected leaders who were supposed to speak for us when they met with world leaders. Now, we know that Joe Quigley was telling us the truth when he said, in fact, this network has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other group and frequently does so. And this cartoon that appeared in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in 1911 shows this cooperation well. It depicted the cartoon figure of John D. Rockefeller, David's grandfather, as joining with a group of other Wall Street financiers and bankers welcoming Karl Marx, the communist, to Wall Street. I placed a photograph of John D., to the right-jacketed cartoon figure of John D. to show you that the cartoonist pictured him correctly. Some of the others in the cartoon are J.P. Morgan, the Wall Street banker, and what appears to be former President Teddy Roosevelt in the center in the glasses. This cartoon shows that the Rockefellers, as a family, liked meeting with communist leaders. First it was John D., and now it is David, his grandson. Notice that the cartoonist showed red flags hanging from various windows on Wall Street. The communists have been known as the Reds for many years. The implication here must be that even the average worker in Wall Street welcomed Karl Marx and his communist ideas as well. So they hung out red flags as a way of welcoming him. Now let me bring to your attention someone else who was in support of this network. This was one of the individuals named by Dr. Quigley as being a heavily involved member of this international Anglophile network. And that individual is Cecil Rhodes. Mr. Rhodes had an interesting past. He was born in 1853 and moved to Africa while still a young man of 16. 
Dr. Quigley told us that he had plans on acquiring enormous wealth and influence. He wrote that it was Cecil Rhodes Chartered Company, called, by the way, the British South Africa Company, which opened up Rhodesia. The African nation known as Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe, was named after Cecil Rhodes after he feverishly exploited the diamond and gold fields of South Africa. The way that Rhodes got control of the diamond and gold, and gold fields of South Africa was to start a war called the Boer War that lasted from 1899 to 1902. He arranged for the British government to send soldiers to fight it so he could, quote, feverishly exploit the diamond and gold fields, end quote. Now, I'm certain that the relatives of the 60,000 military and civilian casualties killed in the war understood that their family members died to assist Rhodes in taking control of the diamond and gold fields. Mr. Rhodes kept changing his last will and testament as he left a total of seven different documents upon his death. It was in these wills that Rhodes left part of his great fortune to fund the Rhodes scholarships at Oxford University. It was the purpose of Rhodes to fund a scholarship program for young idealists to attend Oxford University to learn the secret plan of the founder, a world under the control of this international Anglophile network. It was his desire that these young students would attend Oxford for at least three years, and then after their return to their nation, they would work to achieve the goal of the founder. Now, where did Bill Clinton go after he graduated from Georgetown in 1968. Why, of course, he went to Oxford on a Rhodes scholarship. Yes, indeed. Bill Clinton learned his lessons well from his mentor, Dr. Carol Quigley. This is the top part of the U.S. News and World Report article about Clinton's years at Oxford. The midsection of the article shows seven of the Rhodes Scholarship students with Bill Clinton in the center. So Mr. Clinton learned about the plan and how he should do his part in implementing it. That is not all that Bill Clinton learned. This is a picture of Bill and Hillary in 1970 while he was a student at Oxford. You can see that they brought, they bought, they bought into the lifestyle of the hippie youth. So now that we know that there is a plan and a few of the individuals supporting it, it is now time to start examining just how this all fits together. But first, I would like to discuss how and why they're attempting to deliver on the New World Order. The Council on Foreign Relations, a secret organization of national leaders in politics, business, academia, and the media, published a quarterly magazine called Foreign Affairs. 
The April 1974 edition contained an article written by Richard N. Gardner that reported that we are likely to do better by building do better by building our house of world order from the bottom up rather than the top down. And then run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece. Is likely to get us to world order faster than the old-fashioned assault. What that means is that this network is going to take it one step at a time until they have the entire plan in place. And this thought was printed in page 115 of Aldous Huxley's book entitled Brave New World Revisited. In the end, the people will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us your slaves, but feed us. And this author explained just what the problem was. It was Christianity. This is Terry Cole Whitaker, who wrote these thoughts in her book entitled The Inner Path from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. First of all, Miss Whitaker was a Christian television evangelist in Southern California until 1985 when she abandoned her ministry and became an advocate of what has been called the New Age religion. She reported that she went to a one-week retreat led by a woman named Jay-Z Knight who claimed to channel a spiritual being named Ramtha. According to her website, Ramtha is at least 35,000 years old. Although he is not human, he is reportedly seven feet tall and appears to be pretty hip. He said he is, quote, not considered politically correct, end quote. I would not expect that those last words were his, or used rather, 35,000 years ago. So he is in tune with today's modern language. But Miss Knight says she channels him at times during her lectures. Apparently, he does not appear to the audience. He is channeled. In other words, Ramtha takes over Jay-Z Knight's body and speaks through her. And Miss Whitaker believed in what Ramtha was saying to the audience. Now, let me tell you, I will provide you now with a series of thoughts that Miss Whitaker now believes, taken from her book. You are God, I am God, together we are God. All that God is, you are. Now, whenever I hear someone say this, I ask them to prove it. I urge them to make the sky pink. The God that I worship made it blue. And since you claim to be God, you must have the same power. Now, I've been waiting for at least 10 years for one of these gods or many of these gods to make the sky pink. Uh, the, the fact that the sky is still blue must tell us something about this claim of Miss Knight's students. Miss Whitaker goes on. There is no one single right way and no one single truth. Everybody's truth is right for them. What feels good is what you will do. It's all right to do whatever brings you happiness. 
would like to take a break from these comments written by Miss Whitaker and discuss a similar statement to her last one. When this nation's founding fathers declared their independence from Great Britain in 1776, they issued the Declaration of Independence that contained this statement. All men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable, unalienable actually, unalienable rights. Then among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I've long wondered about this right and what they meant by it. Were they saying that each man was endowed by his creator with the right to be a cannibal if it brought him, quote, happiness, end quote? Surely this phrase is confusing because it is certain the cannibal would claim that his creator granted him the right to be a cannibal according to this brand of power because he needs food to satisfy his physical needs, meaning it'll make him happy. If I could go back to the days when they were discussing the wording of the Declaration of Independence, I would certainly raise this question. Just what do you mean by this phrase, the pursuit of happiness? Surely they could have chosen another phrase to substitute for this one. Now, let me return to the thoughts of Miss Terry Cole Whitaker. You will cherish your children, and they will be allowed to become their own master. Now, please do not think that you will be allowed to teach your children right from wrong, because your children will make those decisions for themselves. As she said, your children will be allowed to become their own master, making their own decisions. If they want to play in the traffic, let them become their own master and do not remove them from the road. That's how you will cherish your children in the future. Finally, I said to myself, nothing is going to stop me. I have a right to do what I want. And I have a right to do it without asking, give everyone the freedom to live. Give everyone the freedom to live as they chose. The good news is that sin is nonsense. You are guiltless. None of what you have done is wrong. There is no such thing as wrong in God's world. God allows. God does not judge. There will be no more tyrants and no more organizations to tell us what is good for us and what is bad. The new age will mean the end of religion. So there will be no more government and no more religion because they dare to tell us what is good and what is bad. This is an overhead diagram of a street intersection. You have the right to go from the south to the north, just as I have the right to go from the west to the east. Now, if we both go at the same time, there'll be a collision in the red area. This slows down the traffic for both you and I. So reasonable men and women agree to put a traffic light to control the traffic. It stops the traffic in one direction, 
while it allows the traffic in the other direction to move through the intersection without impediment. Now, according to Terry Cole Whitaker, there'll be no more governments to tell us what to do. That means there will be no more traffic lights regulating the flow of traffic because governments tell us what is good and what is bad. They restrict someone's right to go north to allow someone to go east. According to her thinking, that is the very definition of tyranny. Governments and religion tell us what is good and what is bad. And as I just showed you, this will be the result when the traffic light is removed. Boy, <laughs> what a paradise this will be. Welcome to this vision of the New World Order. Now, what if you say no to this new religion? Miss Whitaker addressed that issue as well. Those who oppose such a vision, uh, by the way, as taught by Ramtha, will in fact simply disappear. Yes, you heard that correctly. Those who oppose such a vision will in fact simply disappear. Miss Whitaker obviously has not given this much thought because she didn't say just how this will happen. But understand this. This thought is not unique to Miss Whitaker. There are people saying this all over the world. And those who claim this are not speaking of a biblical rapture of the believers in Christ. She's talking about the murder, the murder of billions of people all over the world. Now, I wonder how she will react if Ramtha speaks to her and tells her that she must murder thousands of people. But as I said, she's not the only one talking about millions of people simply disappearing. Let me provide you with just one example of those who talk about reducing the population. These are called the Georgia Guidestones in rural Elbert County in Georgia. They consist of four granite slabs, each about 19 feet tall, that contain a set of guidelines for the future. These guidelines are chiseled in eight modern languages, one of which, of course, is English. I shall only mention one of those guidestones because it is pertinent to the subject currently being discussed. And that one reads, Maintain humanity under 500 million, 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. There are approximately 7 billion people on the earth right now. So if the goal is to reduce worldwide population down to 500 million, you will need to murder 13 fourteenths of the world's population. That's approximately 92% of the world's population. But just like Miss Whitaker, the Guidestones do not tell us how they will accomplish that. They just say it. But they want 92% of the world's population to simply disappear. Welcome to this vision of the New World Order. Now, perhaps this is your first exposure to what this New World Order is, but that is exactly what it is. Each person will be free to decide for themselves in all cases. And there will be only 
500 million of us to enjoy this new paradise on Earth. I will now spend the rest of the time attempting to show you that this is exactly what the New World Order is. Alice Bailey wrote about the new religion, the one endorsed by Terry Cole Whitaker. She wrote this in her book entitled The Externalization of the Hierarchy. The New World Religion is Nearer Than Many Think. She was one of the many who wanted to destroy all religion and replace religion with what has been called the New Age Religion. So the New Age Religion will destroy all religion and government. This obviously means there will be no more priests, pastors, or rabbis, and no more churches or synagogues, because they're the ones who are telling us what is good and bad for us. Obviously, they're speaking about governments as well, because governments teach us what is good and what is bad, punishing those who harm others or their property. Now, before you think that this is preposterous, that no one could believe such nonsense, please let me reassure you, this is exactly what the New World Order will be. Let me continue now with additional information on this thing called the New World Order. This is once again Benjamin Krem, another advocate for the New Age religion, who has written another book called Maitreya's Mission, and this is what he wrote on page 3. We are moving into a period of climax, leading to events which will fundamentally alter life as we know it. Tremendous changes are taking place in all areas of life, preparatory to the establishment of new modes of social living and relationship. We are standing at the beginning of a new era. Perhaps the best analysis of this new world order and the changes it will bring was offered by Alvin Toffler in this book entitled The Third Wave, published in 1980. The inside back cover informs the reader that Mr. Toffler is one of the world's best known social thinkers and he has been described as a futurist. His works are read in more than 50 countries. His credentials seem to be impressive. In other words, when he speaks, nations listen. But I want to make one point absolutely clear. Mr. Toffler is in total support of the changes he is predicting for the world. And Ralph Epperson is in total opposition. Now let me discuss what his views are. He explains on page one that the proverbial man in the street says that the world has gone mad. This book contends that the world has not swerved into lunacy and that, in fact, beneath the seemingly senseless events lies a startling and potentially hopeful pattern. Many of today's changes are not independent of one another, nor are they random. Many of the changes may seem like isolated events, but the seemingly unrelated trends are interconnected. They are, in part, part of a much larger phenomenon. The death of industrialism and 
the rise of a new civilization. And then he explains what this new civilization will bring to the world on page 9. This new civilization brings with it new family styles, new or changed ways of working, changed ways of loving, changed ways of living, a new economy, and new political conflicts. The dawn of this new civilization is the single most explosive fact of our lifetimes. And he continues, humanity faces a quantum leap forward. It faces the deepest social upheaval and creative restructuring of all time. We, which means, of course, he's in support, we are engaged in building a remarkable new civilization from the ground up. When we understand this, many seemingly senseless events become suddenly comprehensible. So there you have it. The New World Order is a total revamping of our civilization. End of part one. Please go to part two. Part two. Perhaps this testimony of a medical doctor will assist us in understanding just how this religion is already changing America. I was invited to speak in early 1989 to an organization in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and after the program had ended, a gentleman stepped forward and told me that he was a medical doctor at a hospital in Pittsburgh and that he wanted to speak with me privately. So I suggested that we meet in my hotel room the next morning before I was scheduled to leave for the airport. He agreed, and the next morning he visited my room. He told me that he was a pediatrician, and after completing his medical studies, he interned in a hospital in Pittsburgh. He reported that he and his supervising doctor, also a pediatrician, became good friends. He identified this other doctor as being Dr. Richard L. Day, who later that year of 1965 quit and was named medical director for the Planned Parenthood organization in New York City. He stayed there for three years, choosing to leave in 1968 to teach at a medical school at a university in New York. And on March the 20th, 1969, he returned to Pittsburgh to address the Pittsburgh Pediatrician Society. My doctor provided me with a copy of the announcement of Dr. Day's speech in the Pittsburgh Medical Association's bulletin. He then asked me to not mention the speaking doctor's name any time I told the story he was about to tell me, and I agreed. And the re reason he did was because the doctor was still alive, and he did not want to embarrass him or himself. Sometime after my visit, my doctor sent me a copy of the obituary notice of Dr. Day's passing, and he told me that I could now mention 
the doctor's name in any telling of this story. Notice that Dr. Day's speech was titled Family Planning, Infant Mortality, Gene Frequency, Abortion, and Other Considerations. And for reasons I'm about to make clear, Dr. Day did not want to talk about family planning, infant mortality, gene frequency, and abortion. He wanted to talk about other considerations. My doctor mentioned that Dr. Day announced to the audience that if he saw anyone recording his speech or making notes, he would leave the stage and not complete his remarks. He further stated that if he had heard anyone claim that he had said anything during this speech, he would disavow that he said that. And lastly, he stated that even if you said anything about his comments, no one would believe you anyway. It was obvious that the good doctor wanted to talk about, quote, other considerations, end quote, from what he learned during his three years at Planned Parenthood. My doctor told me that right after he left the speech, he went to his car and wrote down every comment he could remember. And in the intervening years, he had added additional comments he had remembered. In fact, the doctor sent me a tape recording of his recollections from this speech several years later. And I will now relate to you what the doctor said that Dr. Day had relayed to the audience. I will take them one at a time in no particular order but just as my doctor wrote them down. Dr. Day's first comment was, I want you to know that I have discovered an organized force during my stay in New York. This organized force is so powerful that it fears no one or anything. It believes that no one can stop it. I would like to point out that the Pittsburgh doctor said that Dr. Day said he learned about this organized force between 1965 and 1968. I do not know because he did not directly identify how he found out about it. But he certainly could have read the book by Dr. Carol Quigley during those three years. You might remember that Dr. Quigley's book entitled Tragedy and Hope was published in 1966 during Dr. Day's stay at Planned Parenthood. As you will see, Dr. Day learned far more than what Dr. Quigley revealed in his book, but it is certainly possible that his reading of this book helped inform him about this organized force. Let me now continue with the thoughts of Dr. Day. There is a timetable constructed by those inside this organized force. Suicide will be promoted and encouraged, and it will become more common. The percentage of children committing suicide will increase because they will be given no hope and no future. Evolution will be taught exclusively in our public schools as a way of teaching the students that there is no God and no future. And that we were all animals having evolved from primates. The population must be limited to two children per family. My first exposure to this claim that the earth was overpopulated 
was in 1973 when I entered my classroom for the first time when I started teaching at a community college in Oregon. There was a cork board on one corner of the blackboard, and it had a poster similar to this one, but it actually had people falling off of the globe as well as being shoulder to shoulder on the various continents. Dr. Paul Ehrlich, a professor of biology at Stanford University, wrote a book in 1971 entitled The Population Bomb, in which he predicted enormous starvation problems for the world because of overpopulation. This poster was based upon that premise. The world was simply overpopulated. So I asked my students how many of them believed that this was true, and as I recall, about half of them raised their hands. I told them that I had a way to prove that this position was totally false, that the world was not overpopulated, and that I would share that with them during the class on the next day. So I came, came to the class the next day with a handout showing that this position was a total lie. I started by saying that I was going to move the entire population of the world, around 4 billion people, to the tiny state of Oregon. And then I proposed that I would sink the rest of the continents, meaning Oregon would be the only place on Earth above water. I then took them through the mathematical exercise, showing them how many of them would have to stand on the shoulders of their fellow Oregonians. And the results were 4 billion people living in the state of Oregon and a family of four would have a piece of land 53 by 50 feet. So I asked them if they still believed the world was overpopulated. And I would dare say that I captured the attention of all of my students from that day forward. That was their first exposure to the fact of just how they were being lied to. Now let me return to the comments of Dr. Day. The government will promote contraception by making it universally acceptable. Today schools are giving out condoms and encouraging children to have sex. Sex will be out in the open, and sex outside of marriage will be promoted. Men would become more feminized and women more masculine. This is Justin Bieber, one of the latest teen singers. Upon reflecting upon his picture, one must ask the question, is he male or female? Travel would become a privilege to increase control of individuals and families. There are two areas of interest to examine with this comment by Dr. Day. Gas prices have certainly gone up. This sign was, of course, a year or two ago, but it shows just how much higher the gas price could rise permanently. At this price, no one would be able to afford a private passenger automobile, except maybe the very wealthy. And the second thing of interest is what this gas price increase has done to the recreational vehicle use around the country. It has certainly increased the cost of operating one. 
May I suggest that you consider watching my two-hour DVD entitled $10 a Gallon Gasoline on YouTube. You will see how it is the American government, the American government causing this high price of gasoline and that profits of 500 to 600 percent are not out of the ordinary for the oil companies of the world. Bridges and roads and other infrastructure will be allowed to deteriorate. We will become desensitized to violence. Musicians would use coded language to reach the young people. Abortion will become normal and tax-supported. Planned Parenthood, the employer of Dr. Day, receives tax money collected by the U.S. government. Fathers would have no say in the abortion decision. While I am discussing abortion, I'm certain that the women of the world believe that their body is theirs and that no government can tell them what to do with it. The abortion case of Roe versus Wade was heard by the Supreme Court on January the 22nd of 1973. The court deemed abortion was a fundamental right under the United States Constitution. In other words, your body belongs to you. Once again, this decision was given in 1973. Let me now explain, first of all, that there are millions of people all over the world who believe that Laetrile kills cancer cells in the human body. And people have been consuming Laetrile just like they consume lima beans because they believe they're good for their body. Laetrile is a natural, non-toxic, water-soluble substance. Entirely normal to and compatible with human metabolism. The proper name for a food factor that contains these properties is a vitamin. In fact, those researchers in the Laetrile have named it vitamin B17. As I said, it occurs abundantly in nature in over 1,200 edible plants and found virtually in every part of the world. It is prevalent in the seeds of bitter almond, apricot, cherry, nectarine, peach, and plum. It is also found in grasses, maize, sorghum, millet, apple seeds, and lima beans. It is also found in buckwheat, alfalfa, peas, beans, lentils, and garbanzo beans. In other words, laetrile is in our foods, and it is not harmful to the human body. I first learned about Laetrile in 1976 when I read the two-volume book entitled World Without Cancer by G. Edward Griffin. This book was published in 1974 and has changed the thoughts of hundreds of thousands of people about what cancer is and what is the best way to handle it. Now, if Laetrile occurs naturally in our fruits, seeds, nuts, and certain grasses, then it would follow that everyone has the right to eat Laetrile by simply consuming berries, seeds, nuts, and certain grains. But the Supreme Court does not agree. This is the headline from the second page of an article 
that appeared on October the 21st, 1980, in my local newspaper. It reads, as you can see, constitutional right to lay a trail rejected. Justices uphold FDA ban. As I said, the Food and Drug Administration, abbreviated to the FDA, declared that terminal cancer patients do not have a constitutional right to use Laetrile. So the cancer patient took his case to the Supreme Court. The body that ruled in the Roe versus Wade case that it is the human's body. And it ruled that it is not the cancer patient's body if he believes that Laetrile will cure his cancer. But that raises an interesting question for the Supreme Court. If a terminal cancer patient does not have the right to take Laetrile because it is not his body, how can he give the surgeon the permission to use conventional methods to rid his body of cancer? He must say, I'm sorry, doctor, I do not have the right to my body, so I can use Laetrile. So I cannot give you permission to use your more conventional means to cure my cancer. I guess I will just have to grin and bear it. This is how stupid, and I mean stupid, the Supreme Court decision is. You've got to admit, your body belongs to the government. Here's an interesting thought for you. Let's say your mom says to you, eat your lima beans, they're good for you. She can be jailed for urging you to consume a banned substance. Oh, well, that'll never happen here. Uh, <laughs> this is America, land of the free. One can only conclude that there is a hidden reason for this strange paradox in the thinking of the Supreme Court. And Dr. Day told us it would come to pass on March the 20th, 1969. By the way, let me quote part of the Hippocratic Oath taken by medical doctors going all the way back 2,400 years to the late 5th century B.C., the oath written by Hippocrates, the father of medicine, around 400 B.C. I swear that I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. But that was for an antiquated medical practice Current doctors are certainly smarter now, many centuries later. The modern version of the oath, written in 1964, simply takes that part out. And the abortion decision followed in 1973. Oh yes, one more thought. Notice that those in favor of abortion have changed the name of the unborn child from baby to fetus. But the New World Order wants to control the population, and what greater way to do so than to encourage abortions? Now notice this. Modern civilizations have determined that killing a baby is called murder, and the murderer has to be punished. Abortion kills a baby, and they wanted to give women that women that right. So the supporters had to change the name of the baby to a fetus. 
Therefore, killing a fetus is not murder. I would now like to mention some problems for women who abort their babies. In a January 2006 newsletter entitled The Good Word, the author cited a 13-year study in Finland that was reported in the European Journal of Public Health. They discovered that the suicide rate among women who aborted their babies was six. Yes, that is six times the suicide rate for women who give birth. And I've got a personal story to tell you. The sister-in-law of a friend of mine believed the lie that abortion was just like having an infected tooth being pulled. And secondly, that it is your choice what to do with your body. She later got married, and she and her husband had a child. And suddenly, after she realized how that child was created and born, instantly the thought occurred to her. She knew that she had murdered her first child in an abortion. And now, even years later, when she personally told me her story, she cried as she told me. Yes, a fetus is an unborn child. The London Daily Mail reported in 2010 that abortion is the highest risk factor in breast cancer. And I would also like to comment on another strange paradox in the abortion issue. Some of the courts of this land are not certain that harming a, quote, fetus, end quote, is not a crime. I would like to bring to your attention four articles that I've collected over the years that prove this. 1993, doctor convicted in botched abortion, sentenced to at least 10 years in prison. 1993, Two Missouri women charged with murder in death of four-month-old fetus. 2004, plot to kill unborn child draws a 25-year sentence. 2009, 23-year sentence in crash that killed a fetus being carried in the woman's body. So killing a fetus in a crash is just the same as murdering a live baby in a crash. That means that fetuses have rights just like human babies do. Notice that some judges say the unborn child is a fetus and others say it is a baby. But those who support abortion do not make this distinction. It is tissue that has no rights, just like a clipping from a fingernail that can be thrown away after it's cut off of a finger. But some judges believe it is human and that it does have rights. And this article from the Arizona Daily Star in 2009 says that a federal judge in South Dakota ruled that abortion doctors must tell pregnant women that the procedure terminates a life of a human. Notice that he did not say that abortion was murder, because then this judge would have to convict both the doctor who terminates the life of this human, and also the women who desire an abortion. 
So the question remains, is it a baby or a fetus? And aborting the fetus, is it murder? The courts are giving mixed signals. But to those who respect human life, that conception, that life begins at conception, know the answer. Stay tuned. This battle is not over yet. The nation's newspapers have been reporting recently that various cities and or states have made medicinal marijuana legal for smoking. This is, of course, in a recognition that each of us has the right to their body, and therefore substances may be inhaled because of this alleged right. My hometown of Tucson is one of those cities that is going to allow a state-licensed medical marijuana dispensary in the city. They're going to issue a permit to remodel this location for the dispensary. But I see a problem here that needs to be examined. Here is a recent article published in 2012 that makes the claim that marijuana use as a teenager can affect adult IQ. So marijuana is is harmful to the body, but various cities and states have made its use legal. In other words, you have a right to inhale harmful substances into your body because it is your body. This article appeared in my local newspaper on September the 11th, 2012, and points out that there is another risk to smoking marijuana. The headline reads, Marijuana Use Linked to Cancer in Men. The article pointed out that your seemingly harmless habit may be increasing your risk of developing the most dangerous forms of testicular cancer. And this article says there will be a price to pay for those cities and states that legalize marijuana for any reason. It was printed in my local newspaper in 2011. And as you can see, the headline reads, Please say that pot-impaired drivers emerging as road threat. The article reported that 16% of all drivers nationwide at night were on various legal and illegal impairing drugs, half of which, meaning 8%, were high on marijuana. The article mentions that a, quote, heavy marijuana user, end quote, ran his car off of the road and killed a jogger in California. Uh, (laughs) But that's okay, because California is one of the states that has legalized marijuana uses, marijuana use. Now, this poses an unusual legal question. Many states make the bartender guilty of serving someone who has consumed too much alcohol in the bartender saloon when he injures someone in his car after leaving the saloon in an inebriated condition. And the reasoning is that a sober driver would not have committed the crime, presumably unless the bartender had given him too many alcoholic beverages. Now, if this is a precedent, is the state of California responsible for the death of the jogger when the marijuana user was given permission to use the drug? And the answer, 
must be yes, under the same thinking behind the bartender drunken driver law. Now, I'm certain the jogger's wife and children will not grieve the loss of their husband and a father because they must recognize that the right to medical marijuana is superior to the right to human life. (laughs) Well done, California. There's another legal problem I see here. Let me use the example of the city of Tucson's willingness to license a marijuana dispensary. Let's say that a Tucsonan suffers an accident similar to the jogger's death in California. When the jogger's family learns that the city had given the marijuana user the legal permission to use the drug, I would think that the family would be able to sue the city as an accessory to the accident. In other words, the reason the marijuana user was high was because the city had licensed a dispensary so that he could legally purchase the drug. Now, I would guess that the attorneys for the city council have instructed the council members that it was a magnificent gesture on their part to risk all of their personal assets should they be held liable to reimburse the family. Certainly, the city council must have known that marijuana had these effects on the user because these articles were recently printed in Tucson's daily newspaper. And they know that the city taxpayers did not authorize their tax money being used to reimburse the family of anyone injured in an accident involving a medical marijuana user. I would think that since the bartender can be held liable, for selling an inebriated customer too much alcohol, the city can be held liable for an accident arising from someone high on medicinal marijuana. Now, I commend the city council members for their willingness to bear the costs of any payments to injured parties. Uh, Thank you, City of Tucson council members, for protecting my tax money. Uh, someone, someone just told me that the city council members are not liable. Only the taxpayers are. Oh, well, just like Walt Disney, Scrooge McDuck, we taxpayers have lots of money. Now, let me return to the comments of Dr. Day. Homosexuality and lesbianism will be encouraged. This is an article that appeared in the June 7, 2011 Arizona Daily Star. It reports that gay and bisexual high school students are more likely than their heterosexual classmates to smoke, drink alcohol, or do other risky things. Investigators asked about dozens of risky risky behaviors, ranging from drug use to attempted suicide. Gay lesbian, and bisexual students reported worse behavior in 90% of the risk categories. (laughs) Boy, that sure comes as a surprise. Those results were confirmed on June the 14th, 2012, when the results of a University of Texas study were released. The headline read, Study shows homosexual parenting not equal to heterosexual parenting marriage, and reported that 
children who remain with intact biological families were better educated, experienced greater mental and physical health, less drug experimentation, less criminal activity, and reported higher levels of happiness. Well, that sure would have fooled me. I, that's another giant big uh, surprise. But notice this. If the plan is for homosexuality and lesbianism to be pushed, it increases the need for more government-run programs to help when all of these bad effects take place. So the planners must be pleased with the results. Now let me return to the thoughts of Dr. Day. Ultimately, reproduction will be done without sex, meaning it will all be done in test tubes. This step has not been implemented yet, but this medical doctor says that apparently Planned Parenthood wants it as a future agenda. And the reason is obvious. After Obamacare is implemented, the government will be in charge of all medical decisions. Dr. Day did not say this, but the next step follows. The government doctors will have to listen to a bureaucrat who will decide who gets to have a test tube baby. What a way to control the population. Only those who fit government guidelines will be given permission to have a test tube baby. Boy, what a paradise that will be. Divorce will be more prevalent. According to a site on the Internet, 50, uh, 50, <laughs> first marriages and 50% end in divorce. 67% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. And what has been the result? I would like to show you two articles from my local newspaper. The first one is dated April the 28th, 2011, and the headline reads, One-Parent Homes Most Prevalent in the U.S. as Compared to Other Nations. And the second one was dated May the 29th, 2011, and the headline reads, Census Data, Married Couples Are No Longer Majority. So these things are happening according to a plan, and Dr. Day learned about it in the late 1960s. Living with your partner will become preferred. This is an article by Meg Jay that appeared in the April 14, 2012 New York Times, and it speaks to those who decide to live with their partner before getting married. It reports, Cohabiting, the word used to describe living together before marriage, cohabiting in the United States has increased by more than 1,500 percent in the past half century. In 1960, about 450,000 unmarried couples lived together, and now the number is more than 7.5 million. And more than half of all marriages will be preceded by cohabitation. And nearly half of those in their 20s agreed with this statement. You would also only marry someone if he or she agreed to live together with you first. 
so that you could find out whether or not you two really get along. And then the article drew this conclusion. Couples who cohabit before marriage tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. So living together before getting married just doesn't work. Just as planned. And the plan is to increase divorce. And one of the ways to do that is through the notion that young couples should live together before getting married. And once again, it doesn't work. And that is just as planned. And it is especially interesting when articles like this one appear in the media. This rain-soaked article (laughs) appeared in 2003. And the headline reads, Study. Marriage produced more stable family. Well, our grandparents were right after all. The marriage commitment is the best of all similar arrangements. Women will be encouraged to work outside of the family. This is a program that started in World War II because a world war fought in two widely spaced sections of the world required so many men that women called Rosie the Riveter were called to duty in the factories to make war materials. And this became a major push of the women's liberation movement until women started figuring it out that they were not being fulfilled at all. I would like to show you an article, although it is older, that seems to indicate that many women did not understand the plan and were returning to their home to raise their children. This is an article that appeared in the Arizona Daily Star in 1994 that reported more women were trading jobs to return to their home. One observer said, this appears to represent a lifestyle shift as women look to reduce the stress generated by a working woman. And there has been a healthy benefit for those women who stay at home and raise their children. This is an article that appeared in my local newspaper in 2011. Its headline reads, Stay-at-home moms have healthier kids, study says. Now, this was not planned, so women are figuring it out against what they were taught, and that is a healthy sign. But not all women have figured it out. This is Hillary Clinton, and I have heard her called the smartest woman in the world. I'd like to bring this comment she made about marriage to your attention. It was printed in 1974 in the Harvard Educational Review. The basic rationale for depriving people of rights in a dependency relationship is that certain individuals are incapable or undeserving of the right to take care of themselves and consequently need social institutions specifically designed to safeguard their position. Along with the family, the family, past and present examples of such arrangements include, catch this America, Hillary Clinton, include marriage and slavery. Sometimes the smartest people in the world just don't get it. And I will let her thoughts 
of marriage go without any comment. And I'd like to return to Dr. Day's comments. Men will be constantly transferred by their companies to produce tension within the family. When I told this to a friend of mine who had worked for International Business Machines, abbreviated to IBM, he was shocked. He told me that as a young engineer, he and his co-workers had frequently moved or been moved from city to city, so much so that they claimed that the initials IBM stood for I've been moved. Euthanasia, meaning the killing of all people, will become common. There are reports in the year 2012 that President Obama's medical care for the American people will be rationed, yes, rationed, depending on an individual's, quote, quality life years remaining, end quote, which means that many elderly people will not get medical care because it will be too expensive for the government program for the estimated time of life the person has left. This is called, once again, euthanasia, the murder of all people. Costs of medical care will increase so that old people cannot afford it, and this will cause the government to create a health care program for everyone, and then they will limit care to those who have a greater number of quality life years remaining. Medicine will become controlled. Uh, this has surely happened in a major way with Obamacare. The federal government now controls one-eighth of the nation's national product, the health care industry. And I must hasten to inform the American people, President Obama and the Congress of the United States is to be praised. They certainly chose the most efficient cost containment organization in handling the taxpayers' money. I've been collecting articles that amply show just how efficient the federal government can be when it comes to spending our tax money. I'd like to bring you these 13 sterling examples to your attention so all of you can marvel at just how efficient our government can be. I will not provide details on any of these examples, but will just show you how they accomplished this feat. March 1999, 2000, or sorry, 20. 20 pygmy owls to cost economy $425 million each. $425 million each. Total cost $8.5 billion in 15 years. December 2006. Fraudulent Katrina hurricane aid made total $1 billion. December 2008. U.S.-led rebuilding of Iraq, a $117 billion Failure. August 2009, U.S. rural airfare subsidies about to soar higher, total cost $175 million a year. November 2009, report cites $47 billion in bogus Medicare claims. December 2010, inmates sought tax refunds of $130 million from the United States. March 2011, brand names drugs cost Medicaid $329 million extra. April 2011, 
probe reports IRS paid more than $500 million in undeserved homebuyer credits. April 2011, conversion of the Ghost Ranch Lodge in Tucson to low-income housing. It was a motel. 112 units average cost per motel room sized units $215,000 for each one. Total cost $25 million. May 2011, return aid Federal Emergency Management Agency tells flood and hurricane disaster victims total cost $22 million. Panel. Uh, this is what August of 2011. Waste fraud in two war zones has cost the United States up to $60 billion. Postal Service girds for historic default total cost $11 billion so far. And lastly, IRS gave up billions in refunds to identity thieves total cost $26 billion for five years. Yes, indeedy, my fellow taxpayers, the federal government is certainly efficient at wasting our tax money. And I can hardly wait to see how much waste there will be when the federal government gets into the health insurance industry about one-eighth of America's gross domestic product. Dr. Day, soon new diseases will appear for which there will be no cure. This was said before AIDS was discovered, and there are reputable doctors who have explained that the virus was created at Fort Detrick, Maryland, in this nation's chemical warfare research laboratory. And in addition, there have been all sorts of flus and viruses that have popped up since 1968, and maybe that was what Dr. Day was referring to. Some parents are concerned about giving their children vaccinations because they claim that they can cause serious diseases later on in their life. Maybe this is also what Dr. Day was referring to. The purposes of new diseases will be to reduce the population. The doctors who identified the AIDS virus claim that the World Health Organization, part of the United Nations, gave the virus in a smallpox vaccination to millions of Africans, thereby causing an AIDS epidemic. Religion, especially Christianity, will be destroyed. This, simply stated, is the goal of the 6,000-year-old ancient mystery religion, as will be discussed later in this presentation. But it is interesting that Dr. Day had discovered this truth during the years of 1965 to 1968. Education will slowly reduce the amount of information transmitted. Children will not learn as much. Now ask your children who George Washington was, and a typical response might be, isn't he the lead guitar for the Buffalo Stampede? And here are some articles that show that Dr. Day's statement has most assuredly come true. This is an article that appeared in my local newspaper on July the 24th, 2012. The headline reads, California Parents Win Quest to Take Over Failing School. The article reported that the parents 
had become dissatisfied with the results of the so-called education in the public school system. Two-thirds of the children failed the state reading exam. More than half were not proficient in math. Nearly 80% failed the science exam. But this was not just something that popped up in the year 2012. The article reported that the school has not met state standards for six years. And scores had placed it in the bottom 10% of schools statewide. Ah, but critics were quick to point out that six years of such success success were not long enough to determine whether or not there was a trend here. Now, I must ask this question. Why were the teachers not taking some corrective action to improve the education of these children? Please remember that Dr. Day told us in 1969, education will slowly reduce the amount of information transmitted. In other words, these teachers knew the plan, don't teach anything. They were doing exactly what they were taught to do. The school year will be prolonged, including the teaching of students during the summer. (laughs) These geniuses now want more time to to teach nothing. When I was a student, the school year started after Labor Day, the first Monday in September, and ended around Memorial Day, last Monday in May. But today, some school districts start school during the months of July or August. One of the important results of this change is that it further reduces the influence of the parents during the summer months. And this is in keeping with the plan of weakening the family in the teaching of the children. A lesser known problem in America is the sanctioning of cheating, not by the students, but by the teachers. This is an article that appeared on July the 17th, 2011, about this very subject. The headline reads, Report Describes Culture of Test Cheating in Atlanta Schools. It reported that teachers spent nights in a back room (laughs) erasing wrong answers on students' test sheets and filling in the correct ones. This means that when the government reports results on standardized tests, we, the public, cannot trust the announced results because many test papers have been altered. Investigators concluded that nearly half of the city schools allowed the cheating to go unchecked for as long as a decade beginning in 2001. The report named 178 teachers and principals, and 82 of those confessed. Tens of thousands of children at the 44 schools were allowed to advance to higher grades, even though they didn't know basic concepts. But the cheating even extends to the college classrooms as well. This is an article that appeared in my local newspaper on September the 7th, 2012, and it reports that Harvard University, supposedly an example of education excellence, is discovering 
that many of their students have cheated. It reports that allegations have been made against 125 students for improperly collaborating on a, get this, on a take-home final. Can no one not have guessed that students can might check with their fellow classmates for counsel on how to answer the final questions on a take-home final? But the really depressing thought is that this cheating affects the grading of the students who did not collaborate but completed the final on their own. They are the real victims in this scandal. And the professors do not care. Secondly, what is the purpose of this at-home final when the student can refer to the textbook and the notes the student took during the professor's lecture, as well as collaborating with fellow students. The student spends thousands of dollars each semester to go to the university, and there is no incentive to actually attend the classes and to spend the time in study. What sort of nonsense is this? The article cited a book entitled The Cheating Culture, Why More Americans Are Doing Wrong to get ahead. This author makes the statement. You have surveys showing between two-thirds and three-quarters of college students cheat. And the leaders of higher education do not care. Or at least not enough to do anything about it. This is shocking because everyone who cheats diminishes the value of a college de degree for those who did not. Keep saying to yourself, this is education. This is education. Actually, we should say, this is just as planned, just as planned. Drug use will increase with the purpose of increasing law enforcement. May I suggest that you watch my four-hour DVD entitled, America's Betrayal and Treason. Yes, America's Betrayal and Treason for the reasons America fought that war. Let me briefly say that the Vietnam War was planned by our government in at least 1945. 1945. 19 years before it started in 1964. With the purpose of creating a drug culture in America so that communist China could sell heroin to the United States to get dollars from the U.S. government to purchase American war-making technology and then years later have dollar bills to purchase some of this nation's national debt. Oh, yes, there's one more thing that we got from this drug trade with communist China. And, and we got lots of these. In fact, we got 58,000 of these. I can almost guarantee you that watching this DV will change your ideas about the so-called drug war in the United States and why our government planned the war in 1945 
in Vietnam. Identification will become required with something being implanted in the hand or forehead of each American. This has not happened yet, but the planners have it as a future agenda to follow. But the technology has been in place since at least the 1990s. This is a copy of a biochip compared to a penny, just so you can see how small it is. Food consumption will be reduced, so that its distribution will have to be controlled. Notice that your supermarket is not registering you as a customer to keep track of what you purchase. These could be the records that the government will use if it imposes food rationing so that a huge bureaucracy will be able to plan the production of adequate supplies of the products we buy. Weather will become controllable to cause droughts and floods to reduce the food supply. This is page 30 of the People magazine of November the 28th, 1983, the 20th anniversary of the assassination of President John Kennedy. It asked various dignitaries where they were when they heard about the assassination of the president on the 20th anniversary of that assassination. And this is Reverend Theodore Hesburgh, the president of the University of Notre Dame, on the 20th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. His response was, where were you on that day? I was with the members of the National Science Board. We were seeking for a, a site, seeking a site for a laboratory for research into weather modification. This was in 1963, so weather modification is not a new idea. This is a photograph of the world's largest cargo plane, the C-5A Galaxy Transport. And this is a poor quality photograph sent to me by a reader of a giant 40-ton electromagnet being unloaded from a C-5A at the Shurem Yevo <laughs> Airport in Moscow, Russia on June the 19th, 1977. As you can see that the reader wrote that this picture came from a book entitled The U.S. War Machine by Dr. James E. Dornan, published in 1978. The electromagnetic device was funded by a $3.5 million federal grant by the American government to a manufacturing plant in Chicago. This device reportedly has the ability to modify the weather. Zbigniew Brzezinski, President Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor, wrote the following in his book entitled Between Two Ages on page 57, published in 1970. Even the weather may be modified. And then he quotes an unnamed specialist in weather modification as saying, Weather modification could be employed to produce periods of drought or storm, thereby weakening a nation's capacity and forcing it to accept the demands of the competitor. Of course, America's weather first has to pass over Russia before it reaches our shores. So the technology we sent Russia could be used to cause floods and drought in America 
to reduce the nation's food supply, just like Dr. Day reported in 1969. So weather modification is possible. Hello, everyone. This is Dave. Uh, I know that it sounds like the show kind of ended abruptly, and I want to explain why that happened. Um, this was a one video, and I had to split it. Um, it was uh, three hours and 25 minutes or so long, and uh, Ralph wanted to uh, make this into uh, two shows, so what I did is I split the uh, the video. When I did that, it uh, made it sound kind of like it ended abruptly, um, so I just wanted to come on here and let you know that's what happened. Uh, there will be a part two to this. If uh, you're listening to this uh, right after I posted it, uh, come back uh, next week. Actually, come back tomorrow, because tomorrow, or actually Wednesday, because uh, today's Sunday. But um, just come back and uh, listen to part two, okay? I should have it posted by the weekend. Uh, uh, you know, uh, time constraints, and uh, I do have a life. Uh, and a family, and uh, I do have other things to do. But anyway, um, I'll get this posted as soon as I can, uh, part two, that is. And um, you're obviously listening to part one, so it's posted already. But um, anyway, just want to uh, let you know what's going on and uh, uh, and why it ended, seemed to end so abruptly. So uh, part two will start just as abruptly as part one ended. So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with your uh, radio set. There's nothing wrong with your Internet connection. Uh, it's just the way things happen uh, with this particular uh, series. So, uh, again, tune in next week for uh, part two. Um, hope you have a blessed time. And uh, I just hope you get blessed by this uh, this and next week's uh, audio and uh, video production. By the way, you can uh, go to YouTube to the Opposing the Matrix uh, channel, and you can actually uh, watch this video. It's got a slide presentation and a whole nine yards. So, um, you know, um, sort of let you know that at the end, <laughs> but that's the way it is. Anyway, uh, blessings to you and shalom in Yeshua's name. Goodbye. <laughs>